Amen. This is the very end of Luke. Uh, if you turn the page, my, if I turn the page, I get John. It, it really, this is it. We're right at the end. This is the last meal of Luke as well. Uh, why don't you get a picture before we jump into kind of where the disciples are at? Because I think it's helpful. Uh, to summarize it simply, is they're sad. They're sad because their friend died. And I think with uh, Everett's recent passing, this is quite relatable for some of us. Uh, this has died. But the disciples did a little more than that because they put their hope in Jesus, thinking he would be the one to redeem Israel, he'd be the one to uh, usher in God's kingdom, perhaps. And all that hope had kind of died on the cross with Jesus, and now they're wondering, uh, what's my life going to be about? I've just spent three years with this guy, and now he's gone. What am I going to do? Who am I, anyway? What, what do I do tomorrow? And I think a lot of us friends have maybe felt this way in life at some point. And the chances are, if you're not feeling this, you might feel life was pretty okay. Uh, there's probably someone in your life that is in a similar place of wondering, what, what am I doing? Where do I turn? Where's my hope? And so if you're not in this place this morning, you might be. There is likely someone that you know that's in this place. And into this place, the place of sadness, the place of feeling uncertain about where to go, the place of, of feeling anxious about tomorrow, Jesus appears and speaks peace. He speaks peace. Look at verse 36. As they were talking about these things, they're talking about uh, the empty tomb, wondering what it means, talking about that apparently they've seen, some disciples have seen Jesus here and there. We've just had the road to Emmaus right before this. As they're talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. It's the first thing Jesus says. Folks, it's really important to remember the Christian faith is not uh, a therapeutic moralism self-help program. This is not about making you a better person by you trying harder or something. It's not about that. Christianity is about a relationship and an encounter with the living Christ, who is our peace. So it's not about sort of believing a set of things so you kind of live a good life and feel better about yourself. It's really not that. That's still really human-centered, actually. But the Christian faith is saying, no, the problem is not uh, external. The problem is internal. The problem is me. I'm the problem. And I need someone to come and change my life and to cleanse me and forgive me. That's what we believe. So Jesus is our peace, and into this place of sadness or fear, whatever it might be, he speaks and enacts peace. And he does three peace-giving actions that I want to talk about this morning. The first is in verses uh, 36 to 43. So if you have a Bible, it's okay to write in it. Okay? Mine's got stuff all over the place. If you have verses, if that really bothers you, it's okay, don't worry. Uh, but if you have verses 36 to 43, write right there, eats eats with the disciples, eats right, right there. That's the first peace-giving action. The second one is he commissions the disciples. This is verses 44 to 49, and your Bible might actually separate the paragraph for you, so it's really easy to find. Does your Bible have that? Second paragraph? He commissions the disciples, and finally he ascends for the disciples. That's the last bit. Three peace-giving actions. The first one is he eats with the disciples, and he gives the peace of the resurrection to the question of death. In the second one, 
he commissions the disciples and he gives the peace of the Spirit for the question of vocation and work. And in the third passage, he ascends before the disciples and he gives the peace of his advocacy for the question of forgiveness. So he eats, he commissions, and he ascends. And in each one, he speaks and enacts his peace into three questions in our lives. The question of death, the question of vocation, the question of forgiveness. Now we're going to dive in and walk through each of those. The first one, the first one's the biggest one. But as, as we see through this passage, as Jesus enacts peace and speaks peace into the disciples' lives in these three ways, he is enacting and speaking peace into your life and mine. And by the end of the passage, the disciples are completely changed by this encounter with the risen Christ. And friends, your life can also be completely changed when you come to Jesus and hear his word of peace to you today. So let's look at the first one. This is verses 36 to 43. The resurrected Jesus, he eats with the disciples. and He reveals the promise of the resurrection. This is the first, the first thing that happens. Now when Jesus appears, uh, it freaks the disciples out. Right? They assume this is a ghost or a spirit. This is not a pleasant situation. This is why Jesus first says, peace to you, because they're probably a bit disturbed by it. And uh, you know, this is not a group hallucination. That doesn't really happen. This is something's happened. He's in front of them. They thought he's dead. What is this? They assume he's a ghost. And what's even more amazing and unbelievable, the fact that Jesus appears before them, is he is physically before them. This is the, kind of the confusing bit. It's almost, it's almost easier to think of him as just a spirit, but he's corporeal. He's actually physically there. And this brings us, friends, to the real, the real heart of Easter and the real problem of Easter also. What kind of body does Jesus actually have? Because it's apparently solid, and yet he can disappear at will, and eventually he gets carried off to heaven by the end of this, right? This is... This is probably the hardest thing to grasp about the resurrection. I, I think I had no kind of firm understanding of what resurrection was uh, until later in life. I just I, it wasn't something that I felt like I had learned much about. Even kind of growing up in church, it wasn't really something we talked about. We talked a lot about going to heaven when you die, but not a lot about resurrection. And here's the thing: is uh, and I've talked about this before, so some of you this might seem like a bit of a repeat, but I think it's so important to stress. Uh, Lots of people, even many, many Christians, think resurrection just means life after death. As though you can kind of substitute the thing. Or resurrection means go to heaven when you die. That's not what resurrection means. It's not that those things aren't true, but that's not what the Bible's telling you. That's not what it's about. In the Jewish world in the first century, resurrection meant a new embodied life with God in his new creation. It was a new embodied life. Physical life. And so Jesus goes out of his way, doesn't he, to emphasize that he's not a body? Right? What's he saying? Look at the scars. You can listen, you can touch, you can feel, you can see, this is really me. And his body is somehow in continuity with his pre-resurrection body because he bears the scars. And yet it's also different in the fact that he is appearing and disappearing, right? So there's something that's the same and there's something that's different. But this is very much him. The resurrected Jesus looks like Jesus of Nazareth to them. 
has the same scars. And then, as to really kind of drive the point home, what does he do? Do you have fish? And then he takes the fish and he eats it in front of them. And what's he doing? I have a tongue. Do ghosts eat fish? No. He has a body. He really has a body, right? This is really new to the disciples. They don't know what to do with this. And in this way, Jesus, he's speaking peace to us, friends, when it comes to the question of death. Question we all have, but what happens after death? What can happen for the Christian, like dear Everett, who is in the Lord? What happens when that person dies? Jesus tells us something really significant, and it's this. Your eternal destiny, friends, is not to be a disembodied spirit. That's not, that is not the point. It's really not. Your hope, your Christian hope, is not about escaping your body or escaping the physical world, but your final hope is a resurrection life, which means a new embodied life with God. Paul puts it this way. He says, the resurrection of Jesus, it's kind of like the first fruit. It's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like seeing what God has done for Jesus is what God wants to do for all of us when the time comes. And so what you see happening in Jesus' body is similar, or if not the same, as what he wants to do for all of us. Those who are in him, when he comes and the resurrection is happening, we get the promise of a new embodied life. Uh, and also the promise of uh, an intimate a relationship with God and with one another in his new creation. And that's actually really exciting. So the Christian hope, see, people have a hard time with this. Uh, Christian hope is not heaven, friends. Just when someone dies, uh, when a Christian dies, they are in the presence of the Lord. Yes, absolutely. Don't worry about that, right? Jesus says to the thief on the cross, thief says, remember me, Lord. Didn't have a lot of time to live out a good Christian life. He's literally converting moments before his death, right? Jesus says, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So for the Christian who is in in Christ, when, when he or she dies, are in the presence of the Lord, all's well. But that is not the end game that the Bible talks about. You get to Revelation 21, 22, what's, where do we go? Resurrection, a new embodied life with God. And that's why it's dangerous when we assume that my physical body or physical world is somehow bad, because God doesn't think it's bad. This is his good creation. He wants to redeem it and restore it. It's broken, it's fallen, I'm broken, I'm fallen, right? We've all got stuff, we all get sick, some of us have cancer, right? We're all kind of not good. But God wants to redeem that. Uh, I was listening to N.T. Wright talk about this, and he tells this great story about uh, Tertullian, who's a church father, an old church father. And someone asked Tertullian, they said, if a cannibal eats a Christian, and then the cannibal becomes a Christian later on, at the resurrection, who gets which bits? And Tertullian said something like, don't ask any questions. You know? But it, it's, it's kind of an interesting question, right? How does this work? Do I get my St. Adams back? Right? So that happens. I think it's helpful to realize uh, our bodies are always in a state of transition. So, so the research has been done that your cells uh, regenerate every kind of seven to ten years or so. So you are quite literally not the same person you were seven years ago. 
your cells are in transition, in, in kind of big change, restoring themselves. Uh, so I can look at Mitch, and we met probably over seven years ago, I don't know. But we are literally different people than we were seven years ago, and yet I recognize Mitch. And he, yeah, he looks, you know, he looks great. And, and, and Mitch recognizes me. So there's a continuity of form, but a discontinuity of substance. You see what I'm kind of getting at here? Uh, C.S. Lewis talks about it like this. He says, the resurrection is kind of like the crest of a waterfall. Now, every time you look at that waterfall, the form is the same. Uh, but at every moment, those actual water molecules are different, right? The substance has changed. So the resurrection is kind of like that. Um, we would say of people who are sick, right? We'd say, ah, oh, they look like a shadow of their former self. Right? They look just like a shell of what they used to be. Right? You know, you know what I mean? We'll say, ah, oh, they just, they don't look well. Uh, they're a shadow of their, their former self. The resurrection is, tells us just the opposite. Right now, you are a shadow of your future self. And there's a continuity of form, as in, I think when I at the resurrection, when I see my grandma Kane, she will look like grandma Kane to me. And yet all of the cancer and the decay and the death that was in her body when she died will be gone. Right? That's the promise and the hope of resurrection. Do you see that? You get a glimpse of that? How exciting that is. It's really, really good. And we can believe in that, folks, uh, if you have a good vision of, of God's justice and of God's goodness uh, for creation, you'll get resurrection. Uh, it, it's not about being disembodied, right? Paul says, uh, flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom of heaven, uh, so we need to be clothed in immortality. He talks about putting on immortality. It doesn't mean disembodied soul. He means we need a new kind of physicality. And we see that in Jesus. So Jesus is making a very strong statement when he eats the fish, right? Saying, look, there's a physicality to my body. It's very new, but you recognize me, and, and, and all the death and decay is gone. So friends, this is the good news. This is the first point. Jesus is our peace. He can speak peace to the question of death, the question that we all have. What happens when I die? What will happen? What, what happens? What do I do? Where am I going, right? Jesus speaks peace to that question and says, if you are in me, the promise of the resurrection is for you. A newly embodied life with God that will happen sometime in the future, um, but when it comes, the promise is there that we will be resurrected with him. Fantastic. Uh, so, if, you are, if you're in that place this morning going, question of death, yeah, I don't know what's happening to me, but resurrection sounds good. Come to Jesus, friend. Come to Jesus. He wants to restore you. The second point is that Jesus speaks peace to the question of vocation. Look at verses 44 to 49. He says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That's kind of shorthand for saying the whole of the Hebrew scripture, the whole Bible. And then he opened his minds, uh, their minds to understand the scriptures. And he says other things here. That's what's happening. Christ had to suffer and die. This is the whole plan. That through repentance and forgiveness of sins, uh, you can come back into salvation with God again. Back into his resurrection life. That's the hope of the gospel. And then he says this. Verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. 
You're the eyewitnesses. He's sending them out. You've seen this. You have the message of the gospel to send out. And verse 49, Behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. Stay in the city until you're filled with power from our hearts, the promise of the Holy Spirit. Jesus commissions the disciples to a new life, and that life is to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ into the world, bring the message of God's salvation, his love and his forgiveness into the world, that Christ has suffered and died and was raised. And when he, when he rose from the dead, he ended the power of sin and death forever. That's the, that's the hope of the gospel that we believe. And, and Jesus says, that's the message that you've responded to, and now you need to go pass that on. You know, it's really neat if you think about it. Um, if you're a Christian this morning, you have at some point heard this message, right? The message of the gospel, and you've responded to it. And in that moment of responding, or your life of responding, you are fulfilling the promise that Jesus has made to the apostles in this passage. That they were to go as witnesses and bring that message to the world so that we would respond to it. The disciples are dead for about 2,000 years. All of us here have responded to the message that they have passed on through the centuries, through the generations. There's a deep faithfulness of Christ present as we, as we hear the word and pass that on to the next generation, which is really, really neat. Now, it would be really overwhelming for Jesus to give them a task like this and then say, and yeah, it's all up to you, you're on your own. Figure it out, right? He doesn't do that. Uh, I'd be really overwhelmed if what Jesus had for me in my life was kind of based on my own performance, you know, as though he was kind of grading me. Like, well, if you, you know, if you do this well, this happens. Or, you know, you weren't really that good, Nick, so, you know, now you've lost this thing that was going to happen, something like that. It's not really like that. This mission, the life of being a Christian, is not about proving yourself. Rather, God promises to the disciples here, he's going to personally come alongside them in the mission he has for them. He's going to personally come with them. And he's going to clothe them with power to live the life Friends, it's so encouraging for us. You know, all of our all of our reading scripture and all of our coming to church and fellowship and all the kind of Christian stuff we do, uh, it's really just kind of playing at religion unless it is empowered and guided and infused with the presence of the Holy Spirit. Uh, so if I'm just kind of doing this to say nice words to you on Sunday, but it's not in the power of the Spirit, and you're not receiving it uh, in the power of the Spirit, then it really is kind of useless. It, it misses the point. When, when we stand up to preach, uh, we preach so that the resurrected Christ can speak through me and his words can become, uh, my words can become his words to you. Receive it in the power of the Spirit. That's what happens. And what's so interesting as a pastor is sometimes people will say, I really love when you said this thing. It just really touched my heart, the Spirit. Kind of, you know, that, that, like, I never said that. <laughs> I don't remember saying it. I don't think I said it at all, but something was happening. In the speaker, it does not be me, but as the preacher was preaching, the Holy Spirit was doing something. And something in the words, maybe actually said, or something that was brought to mind as the preaching was happening, did something in the heart of the believer or the unbeliever. So Jesus says, I'm commissioning you to a new life, but not on your own. You're going to do it in the power of the Spirit. And friends, this is true of us as well. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.21, he says this, It's God who enables us to stand firm for Christ. Isn't that good? 
It's God who enables you to stand firm for Christ. He has commissioned us, he's commissioned us, and he's identified us as his own by placing the Holy Spirit in our hearts. As the first installment that guarantees everything is promised. It's this idea that you have been commissioned and sent by Christ into whatever job or vocation or family you have, whatever that is, he sent you into this place. Not to try and wing it on your own, but in the power and in the peace and in the guidance of the Holy Spirit. He's put the Spirit within you to live the life that he's called you to well. Not to try and figure it out all on your own, but with God in you, right beside you, leading you along the way. So Jesus invites us, friends, just as he does his disciples, into a new, a new sanctified and abundant life in God. That is the promise for you. And the promise of the new life is this. You get to love God and love your neighbor, which basically means all of life can become a way of wholly following God. It's not as though one vocation is better than the other. It's not as though Nick, because he's a pastor, kind of gets brownie points with God because he's doing something extra special. No, it doesn't work that way. We are all called and commissioned and sanctified, filled with the Spirit for the work that he has called you to. That might be caring for your children. It might be running your business well. It might be making good decisions on a board you sit on. It might mean being a good grandparent. It might mean being retired. The things you're involved in, the coffee you have with friends, become places where you get to live out and speak the gospel. Everything becomes a sanctified vocation for the Lord. Everything. There's a lot of issues in our world, folks. I mean, you've heard just this weekend, right, of uh, U.S. and Britain and France uh, attack some sites in Syria. No, not Russia. No, Russia would be upset about it. Yeah. Uh, there's some major issues in our world, and we as Christians need the power of the Holy Spirit uh, to speak life and forgiveness and grace into wherever we find ourselves. And it's only when we walk in that love and in that spirit that things can really begin to change. And so we were reminded of the need for that this week, especially in the news. So by eating with them, Jesus speaks peace to the question of death. He reveals the promise of the resurrection. It's really, really good. By commissioning them, Jesus speaks peace to that question of vocation. What's my life about? And he gives them a purpose, and he gives them the promise of the Spirit, who's going to clothe them and comfort them for the task at hand. You're not on your own. And then he ascends before them. And in doing so, he's speaking peace to the question of forgiveness. How do I know that forgiveness of sins is possible? Well, the ascension tells us that Jesus is now alive at the right hand of the Father, still fully God and fully man. That means that there's a human in the Godhead. Does that mean? It means that as a representative person, Jesus represents all of humanity before the Father, because humanity is now present within the life of the Trinity itself. And so when Jesus says, come abide in me as I abide in you, I, the Father, are one. He's actually inviting you into the communion life of the, of the triune God. He's inviting you into fellowship with God. Very, very cool. So Jesus ascends to the Father, and by doing that, he's representing all of humanity now before the Father. And what that means is he becomes our advocate and our priest. 
And I was reminded of, of, of the song this week that really captures this idea. Well, I, I know I've read it before to you, but let me read the lyrics. This is uh, For the Throne, For the Throne of God Above. Some of you will know this. But it captures this idea so well. It says this Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea. A great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can bid me hence depart. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end to all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Behold him there, the risen lamb, the perfect spotless righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace. One with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is lived in Christ on in Christ my Savior and my God. Jesus ascends to the Father to fulfill that priestly role where he now intercedes for us. Your sins are forgiven, friends. And when the wrath of God uh, rightly looks upon our sin, instead of seeing you to blame, he looks upon Jesus and says that price has been paid. And now this one is free. This one is free. My sinful soul is now to breathe. Because God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Three peace-giving actions. Jesus eats with the disciples. He tells us about the peace of the resurrection and the question of death. He then commissions the disciples, giving them the peace of the spirit, the question of vocation. Then he extends before the disciples and gives the peace of his high priestly advocate the question of our sinfulness. And look what happens to the disciples after they witness these three peace-giving actions. Look what happens. Verse 52. And they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Where did we start? The disciples are not in a good place. They're grieving. They're lost. They're wondering about their future. By the end of, of this encounter with Jesus, the one who speaks peace. They come away full of worship, full of joy. And actually, Luke's gospel ends where it begins. They're continually in the temple, blessing God, and if you go to the beginning of Luke, you'll find yourself in the temple as well. You've come full circle as you read Luke's gospel, finding at the end uh, that the worship of God has now been revealed in Jesus of Nazareth. So friends, I don't know where you're at this morning, but I believe Jesus is here. Peace, peace, peace to you.